Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Last week, we concluded the strength of calm with an episode dedicated to working with anger skillfully. Today, we're beginning the eighth strength in our year-long series, Motivation. Life is full of challenges and opportunities. To pursue opportunities in the face of challenges, we have to be able to regulate the motivational machinery in our brains. This includes enjoying pleasures without getting attached to them, building and maintaining positive habits even when the going gets a little tough, and drawing on healthy passion. Broadly speaking, this strength, motivation, focuses on managing desire. This includes learning how to nudge our brains towards desiring the things that are, broadly speaking, good for us, while avoiding the things that are not good for us. So Dr. Hansen is here, as always, to help us learn how to manage that motivational machinery. So to kind of frame the conversation here a little bit, healthy desire is a great thing and a key part of motivation. Unhealthy desire, which we're going to refer to here as craving, is held up in Buddhism as a primary source of suffering. So in the book Resilient, you make a key distinction between liking and wanting as kind of your proxy for that idea of healthy desire versus unhealthy desire. Would you mind explaining what you mean by that? Yeah. So in this episode, I'm going to use wanting in a very narrow sense mm-hmm. and not be restricted to that narrow usage in, few, in future episodes. Sure. And I've used it more loosely in the past. So I want to draw a distinction between tracking the pleasantness or unpleasantness, or let's even add relationality of an experience in the moment and staying with it, feeling it, enjoying what's pleasant, not liking what's unpleasant, uh, being affected by what feels relational, that's really fine, basically. That's different from when it's unpleasant, tipping into what in psychology and biology is called a drive state, in which in reaction to something that's unpleasant, we mobilize fighting or fleeing, uh, characterized internally with a sense of anger or fear. It's also different There's a difference between simply liking or enjoying what tastes good, what feels good, what smells good, what is beautiful, what seems useful and harmonious. That's different from addictive grasping to what's pleasurable. And same way in relationships, we can have a a sense of connection with other people. That's different from moving into clinging or using other people as a means to our own ends. That's when trouble really begins, when we move from, in a nutshell, liking to wanting. And what's interesting is that in the brain, there's this constant generation of what in psychology is called the hedonic tone of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. I personally believe that there's an evolving fourth hedonic tone of relationality that has to do with our profoundly social nature Hmm. as primates that said... Then what happens in the brain in a very efficient way is that we and our animal cousins tip into drive states when there's a sense of disturbance, like too much unpleasant, too much pleasant, too much relationality. And then we get into trouble. So to use a bit of a metaphor, let's suppose you're at dinner with friends and they bring out all this fantastic food. They get, you get completely stuffed. Why? It's great. And then they bring out dessert. And after the second dessert, when you're really about to explode, they bring out a third dessert and you just go, oh no, I can't do it. And they take out a little spoonful and put it on your lips and you taste it. And then they ask, do you like it? And you say, yeah, I like it. Then they say, do you want it? Do you want more? 
and you go, oh, no, I don't. <laughs> and you can see in that simple example that there really yeah. is a difference between liking and wanting experientially, and you can balance it the other way. You can get a sense that something can be unpleasant, and you can dislike it without hating it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I want to explore right here. There's kind of a funny proverb, liking without wanting is heaven, wanting without liking is hell. And so that's the territory we're going to explore as we set up this overall strength of motivation. How do we pursue our goals with passion and purpose without getting sucked into the vortex, which we're quite vulnerable to, of problematic drivenness and attachment to results? So in the episode on gratitude, we talked about there being an architecture of aims, about how living was inherently goal-directed. Yeah. Now, many of those goals are in pursuit of desires yeah. of various kinds. So just as we can't move through life without having a goal, we can't move through life without having desires. We are always going to have desires of one kind or another. Even the desire to transcend desire is itself a desire. Uh -huh. So we're kind of trapped by it. So then what you're pointing to here, the issue with motivation is not so much about moving beyond desire. What we're really trying to do is desire well. Yeah. So in the book, you reference this idea of kind of a tipping point. Mm -hmm. There, There's this sort of moment where you go from just liking to wanting. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what fuels that tipping point mm -hmm. and what kind of causes somebody to move from one of these states into the other. Yeah. The real essence of the issue is, does liking, and we could also talk about disliking, but to kind of keep it simple here, we'll just talk about reactions to what's pleasant or enjoyable and being motivated towards something rather than against or away from something, mm -hmm. which would be forms of motivation related to unpleasant or disliking. So in that context, then, the key question is, does the pleasantness of something, the enjoyableness of something, land on someone who has a sense of deficit or disturbance inside? Something is missing. Something is wrong. There's a background sense of lack. And one of the interesting deep roots of the word want is lack. Mm -hmm. Something is missing. Something is wrong. So if there's an underlying sort of ground or condition or the sort of basis upon which you meet the next moment or the moment arrives in which there's a sense of something missing, something wrong. Then when there's an experience of something that's enjoyable or pleasant or the possibility of it, the opportunity of it, people then are much more likely to tip into a drivenness that internally feels stressful and contracted and often gets people into trouble. On the other hand, if someone... Uh, enters the next moment or receives the next moment with an underlying feeling of fullness and balance. There's plenty already. Yeah, there would be nice to have more, but there's an enoughness already. Then that pleasantness lands on uh, feeling already filled up from the inside out, so you're not so hungry for the very next thing. And what's useful, I think, having been down this road and talking about it, is to bring it into your own experience. Hmm. What's it like, for example, to play a game of tennis or to work, you know, do dishes or get your job done in the office, whatever it is you might do, what's it like to do it with a sense of purposefulness and effort and sustained effort over time without feeling contracted and pressured about it? That's the difference. 
The field of wanting, in the problematic sense that we're using the word here, is characterized by an internal sense of pressure, contraction, Mm -hmm. stress. And it's wonderful to appreciate that you can pursue uh, big goals. You can work long hours without that sense of pressure and contraction and, and compulsion, mustness, insistence, drivenness, in the sense that I'm using the word drivenness here. So, so far, you've used a lot of very positive language to describe liking and a lot of fairly unfortunate language to describe wanting in terms of the nature of the experience, that liking without wanting is heaven, or this idea of we can like something very much but not want it, whatever it might be. If liking is fundamentally a positive experience, but wanting is fundamentally a negative experience, why is it so hard to stay in liking without tipping into wanting? Wanting is a great way to keep monkeys alive back Mm. in the Serengeti Plains. Mm -hmm. And I reflect myself on times in my life when I think it's appropriate to move into the red zone of wanting, Mm -hmm. where you want to pull your child back from the approaching bus, Mm -hmm. or you want to, as a rock climber, not fall off the ledge that you're holding onto. I think there's a place for that. And the utility, the usefulness of those intense forms of desire helps us understand why Mother Nature evolved these systems. She doesn't really care if we're happy much past the point that we have children from an evolutionary standpoint. Mm -hmm. As a total sidebar, there's an emerging what's called the grandmother hypothesis that having uh, older uh, people, particularly women, uh, involved in the care of young past the age in which they could actually reproduce young. There's some benefit for that. But in a context of evolution in which most of our ancestors died before their 30th birthday, or certainly their 40th birthday, Mother Nature doesn't really care if she burns us out in the process. On the other hand, as you know, I'm way past my 40th birthday, and (laughs) young whippersnapper, you're going to get there for, you know, eventually yourself. So if we do care about well-being along the way, and we're not living in environments in which we're grappling with saber-toothed tigers or marauding other bands, or we're living, we're no longer living in a Game of Thrones environment, and we're interested in longevity and living well over the long haul, well, it makes a lot of sense then to explore the possibility, tapping into our evolved prefrontal functions that help us understand things. It's wonderful, I think, to explore the possibility, especially as somebody who's engaged with life fully, even with an interest in personal growth and transformation, even awakening, to explore the possibility of having big goals, enjoying pleasures, having good times with friends, being seriously interested in things like building a business or working for social justice without carrying the add-on burden that Mother Nature has endowed us with, including tendencies in that direction, but still with discernment. We don't have to let ourselves be controlled by these ancient tendencies that were great back in the Stone Age, but today are really costly. We definitely do keep on returning to the evolution of the brain throughout these Mm. these episodes in terms of that driver as survival being the ultimate imperative in anything that was happening to neurological development for the vast majority of our existence. We've kind of gotten to a point as a species where we're post-survival, but generally speaking, that was the priority for the overwhelming majority of human evolution. So that's what the brain is shaped by. 
And as you say in the book, we have a brain that's designed to want what it likes. Mm. You know, if we like something, it's a survival signal that that thing is good for us. So therefore, we should strive to obtain more of it. But now in our modern society and in a modern society where there is a lot of ability to go out there and get whatever you want, Mm. all of a sudden that survival drive, which Mm -hmm. is oriented about hoarding for a harsh winter, now doesn't really have a harsh winter to hoard for. So it's just hoarding. And that's where you see a lot of the excessive consumerism and Mm. excessive consumption of various kinds um, that we see just kind of permeate modern life really Mm. comes to bear. I want to ask you a question about that. Mm -hmm. You have not had issues with carbohydrates, nor have I. I've had other areas where I can just feel the the fact that the brain wants that molecule, Mm -hmm. for example. On the other hand, you've, you've played a lot of video games, sure. and there's a lot of interest and concern these days in the ways in which uh, video games or games broadly, oh, yeah, totally. including online multiplayer games mm-hmm. and so forth, are designed very cleverly, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes with neuroscientists involved, uh-oh, to produce ongoing dopamine spikes and to gamify things totally, so that yeah. people get hooked mm-hmm. in and sucked in, da-da. Hey, question, what have you noticed from the inside out about how those games move you from liking to wanting? Yeah. And what that feels like. Totally. Uh, To give 30 seconds of opining and then a response, the 30 seconds of opining is I I think that games are demonized a little bit, honestly, Mm. in pop culture. I am hesitant to refer to screen time or video games in general as a negative addiction of the same caliber of various kinds of substance addictions Mm. or things like that. So I would just like to kind of say that before we we begin here. But then, you know, I'm happy. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to share about some of the ways in which I kind of interacted with with screens and how that's been kind of my my drug of choice to a certain extent through my life. Well, and it's an issue for so many people. And parents often are trying to think about this. and, And I know a lot of people who will talk about um, Facebook time, for yeah. example, or other forms of social media uh, in which they, they're checking constantly throughout the day. And uh, I think of the classic sort of um, stereotype, but I've mm-hmm. seen it actually. Uh, two people out on a date, ostensibly there to relate to each other, covertly glancing down at their phones. Oh, yeah, under texting the while you're talking with while someone. relating to somebody else. Totally. Just yeah. the, the whole kind of Instagramification of life. Yeah. Just like I'm, I'm going somewhere not because I want to go there, but because I want to take a pretty picture. I think that social media, political television, whatever yeah. it might be, is in many ways just as addictive and just as corrosive as most video games. So giving that as a caveat, kind of using screen time here as a general term for that sort of thing. What I am going to say is that absolutely I've seen myself move from liking to wanting in the third hour of doing something. Yeah. And this kind of mechanistic repetition that starts to creep in where you start almost watching your brain be asleep a little bit. Mm. And there's sort of a waking part of your brain that's like, am I even enjoying this right now? Yeah, wanting without of, liking Absolutely. Itself. Yeah, you kind of keep plugging away. And, and the example that you gave in the book, which I think is a great example, is the idea of being at a casino and just mm. kind of pulling a slot machine over and over. Yeah. And you can just sit, see people in a casino just sit there hour after hour, just keep on inserting coins in the slot machine. I think that there has been that seep of video gamification into so many parts of life. Mm whether it be the casino as the video game or 
social media as the video game yeah. and striving to get more likes on your picture as the video game and watching that number go up and the dopamine associated with that. Yeah, we didn't plan to get into this topic, but if you'll indulge me briefly. Sure, absolutely. You are someone who both knows this material about liking and wanting and who also consumes a lot of what we called in our family screen time. Sure. And I'm just curious, how do you help yourself stay in the liking, the enjoying, mm -hmm. the useful pleasure, mm -hmm. or the perfectly all right pleasure? It's a relief, it's recreation, it's not mm -hmm. a big deal. Totally. What's the tipping point for you in which you're mm -hmm. starting to move from mm -hmm. liking to just spending too much time doing it, a little sure. voices saying, hey, I'm getting caught, but you can't really stop? Totally. Well, how do you track that and how do you help yourself? I think it's a great question. and. It's a big issue for a lot of people. Yeah, whether, I mean, whether it's quote-unquote screen time, you know, excessive engagement with video games or things like that, or or it's excessive TV watching, or it's excessive movie watching, or it's excessive drug use, or, you know, yeah. my, my point is that, like, what we're really talking about here is addiction of various yeah. kinds, yeah. and about addicting materials of various kinds. Yeah. And I think that not all addictions are created equal. I think that some of them are generally better for you than others. But I do agree that all of them have that quality of wanting without liking that starts to creep in there. For me in my life, I think it's really hard because it would be really great if I had kind of a clearly cached three-step plan to kind of stop yourself from becoming addicted to something. Mm. But the reality is that addiction is incredibly insidious. Mm. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I can immediately notice when I've crossed the line mm. from liking and wanting. And I think that it's worth naming that and mm. naming that there are materials that exist out there in the world of various kinds where it makes sense to treat them extremely cautiously mm. and approaching it with skepticism and approaching it with a, with a little bit of extra, I'm going to err on the side of caution here, including zero consumption, if that's what you need to do, I think is a very wise choice for many mm. people, myself included sometimes with this. Mm. For something like video games, what's nice about that is that you can just stand up and walk away. Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder to stand up and walk away from other addictions. And I have not, as you said, struggled with other consumptive types mm -hmm. of addictions. So mm -hmm. I would give any advice there kind of cautiously. Yeah. But for me, doing anything you can to break the space, mm. I think is a really big part of it. Like for me, honestly, literally just closing my eyes for a second, like shaking my head. Yeah. It would make a big difference. Creates a buffer. It, yeah, it would, it would break the feed, and yeah. then I would have be able to kind of go, wait, what Snaps am I doing the here? Spell. Yeah, exactly. So, And I think that you can see that in a lot of different ways, various forms of snapping the spell, um, the moment of lucidity. Yeah. You know, I, again, I, I, I don't want to offer necessarily advice to somebody who's really struggling with a, with a drug or an alcohol addiction or something like that, because I don't have personal experience there, and I'm not a counselor. Mm. But to offer something very lightly, what I would say is that I think we all have moments of lucidity that come along in our lives. And there's a moment where you kind of go, wait, what am I doing here? And those moments are like super precious. Those moments are profoundly valuable. Yeah. Um, and taking advantage of them when they present themselves is, I think, a huge part of breaking an addictive cycle. Yeah. Because I've definitely had days where I sort of woke up mm. from, from the screens for a minute there and went, wait, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. And it was taking action in those moments that kind of enabled me to to move away from that. So people use the line um, "hitting bottom," mm, and mm -hmm. I think there are different kinds of bottoms. Mm -hmm. And I think the way you put it there 
rings so true to me. I, I remember having a moment where uh, many, many years ago, before you were born, uh, I looked at my face in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And after a long night of doing things, and I just didn't like what I saw. Mm -hmm. I didn't like what that guy looked like. And I definitely didn't want to be the 20-year-older version of that guy in the mirror. And that was motivating for me. It was one of those moments. More generally, I like the self-awareness of when you feel like you are being compelled. Mm -hmm. And you've lost yeah, the totally. sense of free choice. Yeah. Yep. There's a sense of drivenness, and I've I, it's not I, me who's continuing to do this thing. This thing is just happening automatically. Yeah, and I, I'm not a choice about it. And that, I think, is a big wake-up call as well, mm -hmm. uh, as a clue. Uh, am I doing this because I really, really want to do it, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it? And I think, flip the other way, sometimes there's too much puritanicalness, and all right, you're doing something for fun, and mm -hmm. you're not really hurting other people. Okay. But on the other hand, is it really based on freedom? Or at some level, is something hooking you and playing you and it's the puppet master? I think that our conversation here to kind of get us a little bit back on track relates to some of the, the elements of experiences in general that make it difficult to stay in liking and kind of move us to, into mm. wanting. The first one being the way that the brain oversells the rewards oh, yeah. of an experience to us. Yeah. How we go into something... For instance, I'm going to an event this next weekend that I'm really looking forward yeah. to. And when we're looking forward to something, the brain just primes us with so much, oh my God, this is going to be so That's great. That's so interesting. Yeah, and you think about all the different ways in which the thing is going to be so great. And most of the time, it doesn't quite live up to that. Right. You know, And so your brain moves immediately into the next thing to want. It was a little bit disappointing. Uh -huh. And that disappointment actually kind of makes you crave the next thing more. But we don't really notice that disappointment drop so much. Yeah. And we don't really track that the desire didn't really live up to the fulfillment. So that narrative we make inside our minds about an experience is almost always going to be more potent than the experience itself. And that's just one of the things that makes wanting so powerful and so addictive. That is so interesting. It's like there's an inner advertising agency mm -hmm. inside your own head that's overselling the rewards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, it goes to the point we were talking about a little earlier that when that happens, are you actually free? Mm -hmm. uh, and also, are you are you not deluded mm -hmm. in a sense that overselling, driven by subcortical regions of the brain that were very that are very essentially that are relatively primitive, that overselling is like being spun by an eager salesperson mm -hmm. who's trying to get you to buy something and is over claiming the benefits of it and fuzzing over the problems. And that is, to use the term incredibly loosely, a form of delusion. Mm -hmm. We're not really grounded in object reality, objective mm -hmm. reality. Mm -hmm. And then as a result, we're not entirely free and autonomous in our choices when we're being oversold that way. Yeah, absolutely. Then a second element of experience that kind of keeps us from staying and liking is just impermanence. Huh? Well, any experience. I forgot what you said. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. All right, I got it now. Nice one. Um, so any experience, no matter how wonderful it might be, is inherently impermanent, right? Yeah. So even if we got this incredible fulfillment from something, over time the feeling vanishes, the, yeah. the stimulus goes down, whether that be an experiential stimulus or a molecule-driven stimulus, whatever it might be. And then we want that feeling again. Yeah. And as that 
drop happens in the body, it can lead into what you were saying initially, which is that feeling of lack. Yeah. So we had something and now it's gone and we want it again. And that cycle, I think, is is really dangerous. And mm. that's definitely one of the places where we can step in. And as you're saying, exercise a little bit of free will in that kind of decision-making process that the brain goes through. Mm. That's really great. That's a very deep thing you just brought up there, Forrest. Mm. And one thing that in many of the classic meditative traditions is uh, valued, the capacity to increasingly get very close to, forgive the phrase, the front edge of now, Mm -hmm. in which it's disappearing beneath your feet continuously Mm -hmm. without clinging to it as it goes on by. So with all of that as context, the kind of obvious next question is, given all of those difficulties, how can we get better at staying and liking and not falling into wanting? Yeah, that's where I think this fundamental idea of green zone, red zone comes into play. In other Mm -hmm. words, we have needs and motivation in effect relates to our machinery of uh, goal setting and sustained effort Mm -hmm. that's applied to those three major needs that we have in our framework, as you know, for safety, satisfaction, and connection. So we're going to be motivated to meet our needs. We need to be motivated to meet our needs. And we also need to be motivated to help others we care about meet their needs too. The distinction is, do we are we motivated inside the frame of the green zone or are we motivated inside the frame of the red zone? That's the key distinction here. For me, in a nutshell, liking is a one-word way of summarizing or labeling uh, being motivated inside the green zone. In the narrow sense, I'm using the word in this podcast of wanting, that's a way to be motivated while standing inside the red zone, Mm. at least with regard to that particular need managed by that particular system, avoiding, approaching, and attaching. So that's kind of the key distinction. Mm -hmm. So then the question is really answered by what helps you stay in the green zone. Mm -hmm. The more you're rested in the green zone already, the more you're able to uh, tolerate or respond to the uh, pleasantness of the next moment without tipping into problematic wanting about it. That's where the practices that we've taught a lot in these podcasts, we've explored it even experientially, really come into play. As you build up resources for meeting your needs, and also as you build up the internalized felt sense of needs met, through both those pathways, you're more able to stay in the green zone as you are motivated to meet your needs. That's kind of a strategic, big picture perspective, but it really helps. I think a second thing, if I could just say it uh, from my own experience, is to be really attentive to the felt sense of pressure Mm. or insistence Mm -hmm. or demand. In other words, wanting, as you're getting at, doesn't always take the form of, oh my goodness, I gotta do one more line of cocaine. Or, oh my God, I've got to drink another six-pack now. It often is very subtle, but it's characterized by this internal sense, usually, of pressure, insistence, or demand. And when you're aware of that, when you're mindful of that internally, it's like a light bulb flashing. It says, rot row, rot row, red zone alert, rot row. And then you can realize that, hey, I can keep working hard. I can dream big dreams, I can have passion, but I don't need to add that sense of pressure, insistence, or contraction. And I want to use a kind of an example uh, from your grandfather, my dad, grew up on a ranch in North Dakota, 
very rural life. And what's interesting about people in that environment that I observed having grown up myself in a super different way is uh, they wake up pretty much when the sun rises and they work long hours. The thing I would say, with some momentary exceptions in general, is they never work under pressure and they never stop working. Hmm. They just keep on going. And obviously, there are many people who work long days of drudgery. I think of Henry David Thoreau's line, most men lead lives of quiet desperation, Mm. quiet desperation. So just because a person's working long hours doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing it without an internal sense of pressure. But the point is, I observed directly that there are people who can be productive or thinking of people raising children who are working long hours over the course of the day. And doing one thing after another, it doesn't have to be the most cosmic thing in the world, whether you're mending a fence or changing a diaper. And yet while doing it, there doesn't need to be a sense of pressure and contraction. Mm -hmm. And instead, there can be a sense of enjoyment and fulfillment and purpose. That's really possible. I think that what you're describing there on a certain level is someone who's really gotten a grip on what you like to call auto-wanting. Which is this experience moving through life where we're basically already full. Yeah. We've had our needs met, but there's this kind of background sense in the mind of scanning for things to want. Yeah. Uh, the kind of classic example of this would be well, I don't really need anything, but I'm going to kind of go to the department store and just look around. Yeah. There's a perfectly wonderful place for just going out with friends and browsing through the store or whatever it is. But it's an example of a kind of thing that I think can become really problematic for people where they're already full, but the brain still wants more. And it's kind of like the analogy that you've used in the past is imagining a squirrel Mm -hmm. or something just scanning for the next nut. Mm -hmm. It's got a nut in its mouth and a nut in its (laughs) hand, but it's looking for the next nut. You know what I'm saying? And you know, it makes perfect sense from an evolutionary perspective. Yeah, that squirrel needs more nuts to get through the winter. (laughs) But as we were talking about earlier, because of all the changes in our modern society, we no longer really need the next nut. Mm. But the brain's kind of built to look for it anyways. And what that means is that we aren't satisfied. Mm. And if we aren't satisfied, satisfaction is one of the key words that we use. Mm. It's one of the key positive experiences, that feeling of being full. If we don't have that, then it's very, very difficult to operate from the green zone. We're constantly living in that pink zone that you described in previous podcasts, that feeling of, sure, we're mostly okay, but are we okay really? Are we missing some threat or do we have enough resources? And that to me is like a very, very corrosive experience that happens a lot in modern life. Just to sum up here, to return in a way to the theme of safety Mm -hmm. and preview the theme of connection, which Mm -hmm. we'll eventually get to Mm -hmm. in some of the later strengths, it's, I find, really striking to observe, first, when you know you're completely safe, there's still a background trickle of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you're worried about something horrible that realistically could actually happen in the next moment. You Mm -hmm. know that in the next moment, you're almost certainly going to be fine. And yet there's this ongoing background trickle of anxiety. Uh, Think of it as kind of delusional anxiety designed by Mother Nature to just keep her little critters on their toes to be extra vigilant. Similarly, you can observe in your mind, just like you said, when you're already full, this 
tendency to look for something new to want. And interestingly, when you feel completely related already, completely connected, there's this trickle of desire in the mind that just comes out that is searching for one more person to like you or Mm. love you or kind of searching for an issue in your relationships. And I think of those as forms of delusional desire, Mm. basically uh, having to do with safety, satisfaction, and connection. And they're really useful to observe and to realize the degree to which they're well-intended delusions, but they're delusions nonetheless. And you can increasingly explore what it's like to engage the next moment, not on the basis of these subtle forms of uh, delusional desire. I think that's a great place to bring this episode to a close. Today we talked about the difference between liking and wanting. The framing analogy that you used initially was the idea of having all of these desserts in front of you, but you're already full. You like the desserts, but you don't want them anymore. Versus this contrasting idea of kind of sitting at a slot machine and just pulling it time and time again, or various kinds of addiction, which was a topic that we delved into for a moment, where you want something, but maybe you no longer like it. We related that a little bit to the episode on gratitude with the architecture of aims and life being goal-driven, much in the same way. Desire is a natural part of life. We can't really get away from it, so the point is to desire well and to like without wanting when possible. You mentioned there being kind of a tipping point between Mm. wanting and liking, how you can stay in liking for a while, but you might find over time that you start to fall into various forms of wanting. And being attentive to that tipping point Doing that is a really critical part of the process. We talked a little bit about the nature of experience, which sounds very high-minded, but basically how experiences are impermanent and they're often disappointing. And the combination between those two things can really move you into wanting real quick. Finally, you closed with the idea of auto-wanting. So if you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a rating and subscribe to the podcast. It helps other people find us, and we really do appreciate it. Next week, we're going to continue the strength of motivation with an episode dedicated to pursuing our goals with healthy passion. Until then, thanks for listening.